My name is Andy Horst, and I am introducing Kathy. Um, I'm a senior elementary education major, and it's my pleasure to introduce Kathy this morning. Um, she's been a prof here since 1990. She's a graduate of Goshen College, and she's got her master's and PhD from University of Illinois in Champaign. And she's a mother of three, and she's one of the most energetic profs out there. She keeps you engaged throughout the whole class, I would have to say, and she, yeah, she's a great prof, and help me welcome her. Thank you. When does the Philosopher's Stone become a Sorcerer's Stone? Why is it that the fantasy of British writers J.K. Rowling Jonathan Stroud, Terry Pratchett, and Brian Jakes is magical fantasy, quest fantasy, historical fantasy. When the fantasy of US writers, Madeline Lengel, Natalie Babbitt, and John Christopher, to name a few, tend to be more generally fantasy that considers alternative worlds, looks toward the future, or falls into the realm of science fiction. What are the trends in adolescent literature with regard to issues such as self-harm, self-identity, sexuality, and family systems? And how might different cultures approach those issues differently? There are times I use the language of distance to understand something better. I might say, put it in perspective, or step back and take a look at the bigger picture, or don't lose the forest for the trees. In our lives, there are times when getting physical distance helps us to see more clearly that which we think about, teach about, write about, read about, and live every day. Sometimes we learn by separating things rather than by joining things together. While the research on twins who have been raised together may not be gripping in psychology and the study of nurture versus nature, separate those twins and study them and the academic possibilities flourish. The academic life is driven by questions, by the need to think through issues, to come to new understandings of our world and context, to read what others think, and to think anew. While this happens, it sometimes gets squeezed out amidst planning courses and class sessions, evaluating, teaching, participating in committees, and advising. The distance is just hard to find in daily life. Sabbaticals are a time for thinking, studying, writing, reflecting. They are time to consider questions and current research and develop more questions. I was asked today to talk a bit about sabbaticals, why we have them, what I did, and what happens when a faculty member's gone. And I'll also reflect on the questions and wonderments of the year, many of which are not neatly resolved. But back to our twins. We, in some ways, are a country that was a twin separated at birth. We share a language and a good many years of history with England. But our paths have been separated for over 300 years. What might I learn from the place that has traveled a different road for those few hundred years? Last year, my sabbatical was in the northeast of England, a place that shares much in common with the US in literature and literacy. 
I began with the questions I suggested at the beginning of the convo. I had an appointment at Seven Stories, this facility here, the Center for the Children's Book, at the University of Newcastle, Newcastle-upon-Tyne, England. It's a port city, a city industrial on the River Tyne, and the home of Earl Grey, the T. Earl Grey. And this is a monument to him in the center of town. I was also just across the river from the family estate of George Washington's family. But how his family got here from there is a completely other talk. The Center for Children's Books is the premier center for children and adolescent literature in England. With a book trust of all the children's and adolescent literature published since 1975, a wonderful new exhibition and lecture space in that building you saw first, and a, a faculty committed to the study of literature written for children and adolescents. I took courses, heard lectures, went to conferences, met with authors, and did reading in my field, literacy and literature. It was a year that fit well with the theme we started with this fall, a year of wondering and pondering. I focused on a number of questions, including those I posed above. Why is it that British authors tend to work with magical fantasy, historical fantasy, while we in the US privilege alternative worlds and futuristic fantasy? What is it about the US, our sense of independence, self-sufficiency, a fairly recent history, a history of largely immigrant groups and groups that did not extend themselves to the population that was already here, that means we are always looking to the future, to worlds that might look different when we write history, when we write fantasy. Could it be that those traits it takes to be an immigrant were so ingrained in the groups that came and those individuals that came, you had to believe there was a better world elsewhere. You had to believe in the future to make the trip into the unknown, moving your whole family to a place you had never seen. Those traits become so ingrained they persist through generations. In our culture, the future, not the past, holds the key to our hopes in life, to that which will make our lives better. Those traits become a part of our culture and come out in our writing. On the other hand, what is it about the rootedness of British culture a culture that traces itself for thousands of years in a fairly continuous line to that, in such a way that fantasy takes place in the past. It is a culture that lives with its history in a daily and profound way. On my way to work, I walked across a wall built in 122 that is still remaining. This is a picture of it in the country, not in the city I lived in, because in the city it's uh, surrounded by so many buildings, it's hard to take pictures of it. I saw churches, these churches, built hundreds of years ago. And in the heart of the city of 350,000, in a city where the area was actually a population of a million, is this castle, the new castle, for which the city was named in a 1088. You'll notice there are train tracks going right past the castle keep there, right through the castle compound, since it was right downtown, and progress takes place over historicity. <laughs> in, it makes complete sense to have fantasy that occurs in castles with dragons and including far more wizardry and forms of magic. When the castles surrounding the town I lived in were Dunstanborough, Warkworth, and Bomborough, the sites that we saw as a part of everyday walking and living, a part of your daily landscape. Indeed, to have your fantasy rooted in this 
or and our historical romanticization of this makes complete sense. And how do traits of culture play into the trends today in adolescent realistic fiction? How is it that the issue of cutting and starving oneself is similar across cultures or is framed differently in the US and England? What is being written for adolescents about these things? In the United States, as I said, we value independence, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, self-help groups, and high mobility. In England, there have been clans and regions for generations that have distinct identities, so much so that the dialects and vocabulary in my part of England, in the north, were so different or could be distinctively identifiable enough that forensic linguists can pinpoint a criminal to within 20 miles of his birthplace just by listening to a taped phone conversation. As a one-time student of linguistics, that was a fascinating set of lectures I heard at the university as well. But how does a pain that is so severe internally as to make the external pain of cutting or starving a more tolerable expression show itself in different cultures? The issues of internal pain and external control find themselves at home in many Western cultures. Does that form of crying out, of weeping internally, seem to come from different or similar cultural stressors? Now, I'm not a psychologist, but I did read a lot of psychology last year, and it's a very complex issue. But some of the factors that get reflected in literature for adolescents have to do with things like, in the United States, isolation, high mobility, no connections with friends or intimate family. On the other hand, in Britain, they have somewhat to do with the constraints of a community that is not very mobile and where you have many generations bearing down on you in one place. In the US, it happens to be set much more often in middle and upper middle class settings. In England, it's much more related to the social factors of one's situation. We could analyze for issues of third cultureness or identity, sexuality or family in the same way. And we, but, and we have taken some things that work very similar between our cultures and some that different. But it is not only the social context, but also the geographical context that plays a role in literature for, for adolescents and youth. Living in an island country made me much more aware of my Irish, Scottish, Welsh, and European neighbors. And in literature, that means issues of translation. I was delighted to be able to hear Anthea Bell, a marvelous translator of literature. And for those of you who are Asterix fans, she's the one who translated all the Asterix and Obelix books from French to English. She also, in the youth realm, has been the one who has translated Cornelia Funk. That means thief lord, dragon rider, if you're a fantasy fan. And is a person who raises all the issues of how to translate culture, tone, sense of story, along with words, when working on a book. But the translation that fascinated me the most last year were those made by publishers when moving from the British to the US market. Why did a philosopher's stone become a sorcerer's stone? It seems because the US publishers did not think the US population was able to appreciate a philosophical approach to Harry Potter's world and would only be interested if sorcery and witchcraft were emphasized a part of the conversation that's been very prevalent in the United States and almost absent in England, that of sorcery and witchcraft, because it was not emphasized nearly as much in the marketing. What about us as a US buying population would indicate that we would not appreciate a philosopher's stone, the English title of the book? Do we have to evoke the idea of evil or malevolence for people to buy books? And why is the color of, cover of Ptolemy's Gate, Jonathan Stroud first in his series of Bartimaeus, like this in England, and like this in the United States. 
Again, it seems we need to have fantastic creatures that look cynical and malevolent rather than mischievous or powerful to be interested. The content of what is appropriate for children also shifts as you move cultures. This book, Une si jolie poupée, or Such a Beautiful Doll, translated into English, has not been picked up by a US publisher. It's the story of scientists who research making the most beautiful, lovable, attractive doll possible for little girls. As we read the story, we realize that their real purpose for doing this is to plant bombs inside, then place them in war zones and hope little girls pick them up to take them home to love. This indeed happens to the destruction of this little girl. On the second to the last spread, we see a boy finding a toy airplane, and we know what will happen to him too. On the last page is the head of the doll. Certainly, this is not what she intended for her life either, and she is left with only a head, a head full of shame. A cynical book, maybe, a sad book, a damning book about what we're willing to do in the name of war, and one that we in the US would say we find unacceptable for children. It's interesting to me that this is unacceptable in the US where we have guns in many, many children's homes, while in France, where this book was written, there are strict handgun laws. Or in our culture, where we moved right into Iraq very powerfully and children could watch it on TV, but in France, where they refused initially to join the invasion of Iraq. It is interesting to me that we find this way too harsh in a culture where we have not had a war fought on our territory since the days when wars were fought in such a way that you would take your picnic basket from Washington and go on the hills and watch the battles down below. Whereas France has lived through a number of wars on their territory and they know what it looks like. We find this book too harsh. We are an optimistic people. These questions give you just a taste for the issues I was discussing, studying, and reading about during the year. I was delighted to be in a context where my professional goals could be realized in such a good way. But I got more than that as well. I got the advantage of spending a year seeing the US from the outside, through the perspective of the eyes of faculty, such as Kim Reynolds, my faculty colleague, who also, knew, who also knew both cultures well, and researchers, some of whom moved cultures and some of whom did not. From school moms, this is Helen and Teresa, school moms at the primary school with my children, and newspaper reporters in Northern England. I got to go with a, with a children's literature colleague, Karen McKeague, there on the left, to the hills around her home in Rothbury, where she is helping to catalog prehistoric cup and ring formations and notes the Iron Age village ruins in her area. I got to hear the questions someone from England or continental Europe asks an American about why we do what we do politically, the analysis of Hurricane Katrina, and the response of the US government and people came from the British perspective as it happened while I was there. This included the response by the British to their gift of $5 million of meals ready to eat for those affected by Hurricane Katrina that sat in a warehouse in Louisiana and then got shipped to a poorer country because the US government thought the meals might include meat that, with mad cow disease and would not be good enough for hurricane ravaged Americans to eat. Good enough for our military, but not good enough for Americans, the British press chided. It also included very thoughtful essays in the Manchester Guardian by an agnostic humanist who was reflecting on how it seems that Christians really do respond more in crises in a way that humanists just don't. Of course, there were countless analyses of the war and 
an interesting daily chronicling of the U.S. response to Camilla Parker Bowles' first visit to the U.S. after marrying Prince Charles during the time they were here. Some of you may not even know she came to visit. I had opportunities to think about empire, how we build it, keep it, live with the consequences from it, from different perspectives. What is empire in a monarchy, and what is empire in a democracy? How does a democratic monarchy live with the effects of colonialism, as opposed to how we in the U.S. have lived with the effects of colonialism? How does it look different when you are a country that has once ruled a good part of the world, but no longer do, as opposed to a country that considers itself the only remaining world power? As I mentioned earlier, I had the privilege of living right on Hadrian's Wall, built by the Roman Emperor Hadrian in A.D. 122 at the northern fridges of the Roman Empire, and it goes across the whole of northern England in one contiguous line. I got to walk among the castles and fortresses built to protect from the Vikings on the east and the Picts to the north, now the Scots. And we lived 30 miles from the current residence of the Duke and the Duchess of Northumberland in Annick, where, by the way, the first two Harry Potter films were shot. You recognize that gateway? The current Duke and Duchess are my age. How do nobility that are my age, with children, almost the age of my children, in fact, they had four instead of three, how do they live? I got to live in the heart of Celtic spirituality, close to the holy island of Lindisfarne, where Cuthbert was prior and a hermit, and next door to Jaro, where the Venerable Bede did his scholarly work in the 8th century, and this is part of a reconstructed Anglo-Saxon village there. I got to enjoy the fellowship, warmth, and new perspectives offered by a church home at Heaton Baptist Church, where I learned, from different, where I learned some different tools for Bible study and enjoyed a prayer partnership with one of the most skilled prayers I have known in my life, Helen. It gave me a chance to think about the role of worship styles, hospitality, and what makes a believer in a culture where very few claim belief. These things I bring back to Goshen College, hopefully in ways that will change my teaching, my understanding of my discipline, and my understanding of the world context in which we all find ourselves. And indeed, while I was gone, Goshen College also changed and grew in many ways. I came back in July, a passel of new plans for my courses, new literature on my shelves, new ideas to explore, to a campus that had a new president, half a new student body, since I didn't know last year's frosh or this year's frosh, and in many ways, a new education department. While I was gone, two new people joined our department, Christy Bonfiglio in the top and the light blue, who is in special education, and Kevin Gary in the bottom, a little easier to figure out since he's the only male in our department, in secondary education. They joined Barb, standing in the top, and Marge, who've been my colleagues over the years. While I was gone, we graduated our first class of teachers, licensed in special education. While I was gone, we graduated our first class of Rules 2000 teachers, a new licensure system in the state of Indiana. But that is the nature and the gift of learning, of living the academic life, of the seasons of our professional lives, that of being fluid and dynamic over time. We learn and grow and change. Already, we're past midterm this semester. We're not the same group we were when we came together at the first convocation of the term. We have wondered and learned and changed together. What a gift it is to work in a setting that prompts that kind of thinking, study, and growth in such short amounts of time. And what a gift it is to have those seasons, short breaks, summer months, midterms, and semester breaks, 
when we have time to reflect and think about all that we have read and studied. You are dismissed. <laughs>